0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, uh, a hero turned friend, but still a hero, obviously. Uh, One of the greatest American songwriters ever. And uh, and, and, and involved in one of the uh, most uh, biggest booms in wrestling history. Uh, I feel like I have to tack that on for some reason. Bob Mould from Husker Du, from Sugar, from Bob Mold's solo work. And he's just put out an unbelievably awesome new record. More on all that in a second. But oh my gosh. Oh, I've wanted to say that for a very long time. It feels good to finally say that Bob Mold's on the show. This has been coming for a long time. So we'll get to all that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire. Here, I'm friends with Bob, and I've been, you know, texting him forever, trying to get him on this show, and lo and behold, Tristan made it happen. So thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do uh, for this show. I, I love you, buddy. You're my brother, but I love you for uh, the work you do for me, too. That sounds very selfish. Anyway, uh, if you want to get in touch with me more directly, you can find me at Left4Damian. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about the cool podcast that we have here. Uh And if you uh, want to support it more than that, you can head over to uh, Patreon.com. We have a Patreon page where we put up footnotes and there's going to be some other podcasts actually coming up real soon, uh, popping up there as well. Uh And thank you, thank you, thank you to all the people that head over to Patreon and do support this podcast because it'd be hard to do it without you. It would be nigh impossible to do it without you. So thank you very much. Uh, and speaking of thank yous, this show would also not be possible to the kind, loving, support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just just don't do it out of your own pocket anymore. And they helped me kind of cover the costs here, and I really thank them for doing that. Thank you very much to them. And you can also subscribe to it or write a review for it on your podcast listening platform of choice. And, uh, I would love you to do that. Thank you very much to all the people that do do that. Uh, it is much, much appreciated. Okay. That's it on to today's show today on the show, the one, the only Bob mold is here. First met Bob years ago when fucked up, played Coachella after we finished the set, uh, a guy came over to me and we started talking and I had sunscreen in my eyes and I couldn't see. And I introduced myself like, hi, my name is Damien. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm Bob Mould. And, you know, rubbing the sunscreen from my eyes and just like, oh, my God, it's fucking Bob Mould. Because I think anyone that's familiar with uh, my band knows that Husker Du is obviously a huge influence on what we do and we're not alone. Husker du is a huge influence. Husker Du, Husker Du on it's Husker Du I believe is the proper pronunciation, but Husker Du sounds fine too. I don't know which is the way to go. I always I always fight with myself on what I should say on that one. But anyway, they are one of the most important bands in American music history and uh yeah, and then Bob does it again with Sugar, you know, and then Bob does solo stuff too. That's incredible. And then Bob rates the the theme, sh- the theme song for The Daily Show. And then Bob's like over here also producing all these cool hardcore records back in the day as well and, and still producing amazing records like Titus Andronics' record and all that kind of stuff as well. And then he's also writing for WCW during the Goldberg era, during the NWO era. Okay, right after the main NWO era. But still, like, he is, he's there in the thick of it. And oh my gosh, I am excited for you to hear this thing. We have... We have spent some time together over the years playing and, and and hanging out at festivals and things like that, talking wrestling, and I've wanted to bring it here for a very long time, and now it's finally here. It was worth waiting for. Uh, but don't you wait on checking out Bob's new record, Blue Hearts. Uh, I'm a fan of everything Bob Mould puts out. Like, I am a, I, I, I cannot think... Uh, maybe, maybe the techno stuff didn't hit me in the same way, but, you know, anything Bob Mould does in like the rock world, uh guitar world, pop world. I'm all in for, but the new record is one of my favorites of all the stuff he's done. Even going back to Husker Du and Sugar and yeah, like his new record Blue Hearts is a real angry record, uh, a real I don't know, vibrant record. It's got his it's got his hooks, it's got his songwriting, it's got his lyrics, but, you know, it's got his rage in it, too, which is something that, how can you not be angry right now, you know? How could you not be uh, full of rage looking at the world around you? I think this thing might be my album of the year right now, you know? Like, it's, uh, I know the year's still going, but, uh, man, I love this album. I love this album. And I also gotta say, I love Brian Koppelman's podcast. Uh, Brian Koppelman, of course, brilliant writer, uh, wrote, uh, you know, rounders, and of course, billions. One of my favorite TV shows, and he has a great podcast, an unbelievable podcast that he's been doing for a very long time. And recently had Bob Mold on, uh, and they they talk about fucked up on it, and oh. I've been blushing ever since. So not just for that reason. It's an amazing conversation with two incredible writers in different worlds. Well, I guess Bob also wrote for TV with WCW as well. But anyway, two two kind of, you know, different worlds kind of coming together, talking about creativity and process. And yeah, I strongly recommend checking out Brian's podcast as well. Well, now I just feel like I'm uh, drawing this out as long as possible. To, but, oh. Uh, I'm just just building more anticipation for this thing. Uh, That's it. Uh, I don't don't got anything else to add. Um, Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Oh, it feels good to say this. Bob Mould on Turned Out a Punk. (laughs) Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Absolutely good to be here, Damien.
0: Well as I was just telling you off air this is like we've I've you know been fortunate enough to, to hang out with you a number of times over the years and I've kept the punishment to a minimum on on those occasions because you know it's not socially acceptable to really grill someone with nerdy questions about the recording history but now we are in the terror dome when it comes to the punishment my friend
1: <laughs> I'm glad it's the terror dome and not the thunder dome so
0: <laughs> it's beyond thunder dome
1: <laughs> the the best buy dome He's we're the... we're talking inside pro wrestling here, folks
0: <laughs> exactly. well, i'm gonna try and keep that too. Uh, my brother, like who's you know obviously a massive fan of yours and not so much a fan of wrestling is like, please don't spend the whole time talking to him about wrestling. So okay. I promised him that I would keep the wrestling talk to a little bit of a minimum, but I guarantee it's going to slip in because how could it not? Because I've, I've said this before on the show, but now I can say it to you. To me, you are the Bo Jackson of my world. You know, like you are uh, at the highest level when it comes to music and you got to the highest level when it comes to pro wrestling in on the creative side of things. So like really you are, you're my Bo.
1: Oh gosh! Well, thanks for that. I'll try. I'll try not to disappoint as we move into this. <laughs> okay. Well, I got to start this off off the way they all start off, which is how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Uh, Rock Scene magazine would be my answer. Um, so I was born in 1960, and I was raised in a small town in northern New York State called Malone, which is about 50 miles south of Montreal, and uh, You know, I loved music as a kid. I remember hearing the soundtrack to Around the World in 80 Days when I was three years old and being fascinated by the album cover. I, you know, starting in 1967, I was allowed to buy two albums a year at uh, the drugstore uh, in my small town. And then my parents bought a sort of like Adobe Gillis type mom and pop grocery store where the house was attached. And the same companies that sold tobacco and alcohol to my parents' store also took care of the jukeboxes in town. So my dad would buy boxes of used jukebox singles for a penny a piece. And those were my toys as a kid. Uh, I started writing music. I learned how to to write songs. I was self-taught just copying the Beatles and the monkeys and the mamas and papas and all that stuff. Then in high school, I started listening to music that my friends listened to, you know, heavy metal, Fleetwood Mac, whatever, that kind of stuff. And I would, I was a big kiss fan in high school. So I started buying this, uh, magazine called rock scene. And it was uh, Richard and Lisa Robinson were the editors and the magazine covered both the Aerosmith Kiss, Nugent side of things, as well as this stuff called punk rock. And, uh, you know, they would do photo essays of the Ramones going to buy a PA and showing them loading it into the back of a van. And I was like, wow, who are these guys? Like, this is not a Learjet. These are not you know, groupies and cocaine and, you know, high society. What is this all about? So I was fascinated by the the, the look and feel of the, the, you know, the Ramones and television and Blondie, but I hadn't heard the music. You know, again, this is 1976. So I bought the first Ramones album and that was it. Short, there, there's the short, there's the long answer to a short question. It, uh, <laughs> It was sort of like, I heard that record, you know, I was playing guitar, you know, trying to teach myself guitar already. But when I heard the Ramones, I was like, Oh my God, this is perfect. I can surely learn to play like this. And I could surely write songs like this. And maybe, maybe there's a place for me someday in music because of this. So yeah, that was the that was the epiphany. That was the moment where it was you know goodbye Kiss, hello Ramones, and that was that was the beginning of it.
0: So where were you hearing rock and roll kind of before rock scene? Like where were you like just from the radio? I guess
1: yeah, it would have been like Show FM mm-hmm. up in Montreal, which was like you know I I would. Uh, You know, listen to, you know, they would have a little bit of specialty music on Sunday nights, but it was mostly, you know, Genesis, Super Tramp, Gentle Giant, stuff like that. You know, Rush, you know, that was that was what I was hearing on the radio station. And, uh, you know, I was going to shows, you know, I went to a few arena shows. But again, after hearing the Ramones and, you know, I think it was when Leave Home came out, it was their second album. And uh, I saw that they were opening for Iggy Pop at at a small theater at the University of Montreal. And that would be my first punk rock show that I went to. And again, you know, seeing 40 Minutes of the Ramones, I was just... You know, it was magical. It was like, oh, yeah, not only can I not only have I learned to play and write like this, but now that I've seen how they perform. Yes, certainly I should be able to at someday be in a band <laughs> where we play packs of three or four minute, you know, three or four two minute songs in rapid order. <laughs> just... That's amazing. Like, so what was the Montreal scene
0: like at that point? I imagine pretty towny.
1: Uh, I mean, I was just a high school kid. I wasn't the, the most enlightened high school kid. Cause again, I came from a farm town. So it's pretty much my concert experiences with heavy metal were Get on the, get on the yellow school bus, <laughs> go across the border, hope that your joint doesn't get discovered, you know, and then when you, you know, and then all of a sudden you're in the parking lot outside the forum and, you know, I'm like doing, you know, chugging a bottle of vodka and smoking pot and throwing up, you know, and falling face first in the mud, you know, like, like any good 16 year old kid from a farm town, uh, the punk rock scene. I don't, you know, the, the punk rock scene that I remember at the time was more the Toronto scene where it was the, you know, like the vial tones and the diodes and, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, Montreal bands. I wasn't that, tuned in were the were the nils going at that point or was or were they a little bit later
0: i think a little bit later i think it would have been something like the two two twos and there's some like weird kind of prog you know virgining on punk rock stuff but it's still like as you're saying like super super early like second ramones record
1: yeah that was again again that would have been more the you know at that time for for canadian content it would have been the toronto stuff for sure so uh, who would organize these school bus trips across the border uh, my, f- my, high school French teacher, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how we talked him into this, but he, he was just like, oh yeah, th- you know, we'll go to, it's a reason to go to Montreal, but it would be like 30, you know, it'd be like 30 of us would go to see rush, rush opening for Aerosmith was my first show that I saw, you know, this, you know, the, sh- the, the show where I fell face first in the mud <laughs> out in the parking lot, uh, but <laughs> Yeah, good times, right? Was
0: was so Rush must have been even like, you know, in Montreal kind of local heroes, I guess. Like did they go over huge at
1: that show? Yeah, they went over really big. And that and it was it was sort of tough because I loved Aerosmith, but it was the Rocks tour and that was a mess for them. I think that was when, you know, the 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 drugs and guns and planes were, you know, private planes was in full gear and you know Rush I think it was just as 2112 was happening. So it was, you know, sort of peak Rush and a little after the peak of Aerosmith. So you know, at least I learned the value of of getting there on time for the for the opening acts which, <laughs> you know, definitely definitely paid off well when I saw Cheap Trick completely decimate Kiss not not many months after that. <laughs> It's funny because there's always those there's those
0: tours like that first Slayer tour and the first Metallica tour layer where there's almost like those changing of the guard rock tours where like the aging rock band makes that mistake and books like the, the hot young band to blow them off the stage.
1: Yeah, yeah, it uh, and it's funny because I've gone back and looked at at, at Rush and Cheap Tricks itineraries around that time, and like Rush was just sort of playing with everybody everywhere. It seemed like you know, and now you know they were you know they were big in they were big in Eastern and central Canada for sure. But it just like looking at old itineraries of people, it was like, wow, they're, you know, it was, it was wild to see some of the pairings on, on, on shows back in the late seventies. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, seeing that, you know, again, seeing the Ramones open for Iggy, it was, it was a, a total, you know, life changer for me. And, and, you know, alongside that, you know, still buying Roxine magazine. And, you know, I was already applying to colleges and I think I had been accepted to Macalester college in St. Paul, Minnesota by then. And I remember in, uh, in Roxine, they used to have a section just showing like a singular photo of new bands across America who were making punk rock records. And I remember seeing a photo of a band called the suicide commandos from Minneapolis. And since I was going to school the following year in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul in the twin cities, I thought, well, maybe I should pick up the suicide commandos record next time I go shopping. So I think I bought the commandos first album in, uh, Burlington, Vermont and loved it and just thought, wow, this is super cool. So, When I moved from Malone, New York, to St. Paul, Minnesota in September of 1978 to go to McAllister, the first thing I did was get a fake ID because the Suicide Commandos were playing on Friday night at this place (laughs) called the Longhorn Bar in downtown Minneapolis.
0: (laughs) I guess going back to that Suicide Commandos, it's amazing. I guess Blank Records had really good distribution, right? Like they did the Perubu record and that. Right. As the two LPs that they did. But like for that to be in like Burlington, Vermont, like it must have been around.
1: Yeah. uh Blank Records was a uh, it was a boutique label that was part of Mercury Records. And, you know, fun fact, Blank Records was run by Cliff Bernstein, who, you know, co-manages Metallica and, you know, runs a company called Q Prime and. You know, has you know, Cliff has done amazing things in the business, but that was one of his early moves. Was uh, was Perubu and Commandos, and I think there was there a Bizarros record. Might have been the third. Oh, that's right. That does sound very familiar. Yeah, the Bizarros, which I
0: and I think the Bizarros single is incredible. Too. Yep 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 so yeah
1: signings (laughs) yeah totally weird signings but yeah so that was yeah the commandos and blank records had good distribution i picked up that record and then you know going to see the commandos in september of 78 for the first time it was that was my first time in a punk rock club show you know because the theater show with the ramones was was one thing it was fixed seating and the best you could do is stand up in your seat area but To go to a club where there was 500 people and, you know, the band was accessible and you could go right up front and you could drink and just I was like, oh, my God, this is. Here, I, here it is. This is the <laughs> punk rock that this is the, the, the punk rock I've I've read about all my life and heard on the heard on the radio and seen on TV and uh, even last night I had to go back and watch uh, that Bill Grundy episode with the Sex Pistols. I just just for fun, you know, <laughs> just to, just to remember. Oh, yeah, those were simpler times when you could just say fuck on the radio on television. It wasn't you know part of a debate or something. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's
0: funny too how like that clip like you know like how you're like you're saying how quaint it is now but you know at the time like it did like kick off the musical revolution like that was the shot kind of heard around well certainly the, the UK Yeah
1: yeah definitely and and, and you know it's fu- it's funny with me and punk rock and t- t- you know tell me what you think of this cuz I always think back on Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood and their shop sex. And I think about McLaren with his late era, managing the communist New York dolls and you know, the, the approaching silver Jubilee and then the putting together of the sex pistols and stuff like, what's your take on all that? Like, what does that all mean? Well, I like, you mean as far as like, why did he do it? Or just like, why did it happen? yeah, like do you do you consider that like the genesis of the British punk rock movement, which was very different than the downtown New York punk rock oh, movement? Oh, yeah,
0: definitely. I got. I don't know. My thought is that it's like you have this energy that's like really around '74. It really starts coalescing where you have you know Rock from the Tombs in in Cleveland doing it. You have Teenage Head even forming in Hamilton. You've got the Saints and Radio Birdman kind of like doing it already in Australia and Doctor Feelgood yeah. in the UK. So it felt like. and the nerves even, sorry, in LA. And, you know, so you have this energy kind of swirling around and then it just kind of coalesces. And I think Malcolm McLaren is, you know, for all his faults was definitely someone that could kind of pick up on where, where the wind was blowing and and kind of align himself with the right people. And, and just, yeah, took that and kind of, you know, put it in, brought it back to the UK and, and found a way to market it a little bit better than people in New York were doing.
1: Yeah, and then the Ramones show, July fourth, seventy six. Uh, you know, sort of the sort of the acrimony slash overlap between Thunders and the Heartbreakers mm-hmm. and the Sex Pistols. Yeah, I mean it was a really interesting period. You know, sort of historically in music because it. You know, I, I used to I used to always talk about. Uh, what was the term that I used to use, like divergent evolution, Mm -hmm. you know, where, where, where similar things begin in different places and then it all sort of coalesces into something that you don't really see coming. And yeah, it's, it's always interesting to think, you know, yeah. Like Dr. Feelgood or Eddie and the hot rods, all that, you know, just that stuff that was, you know, around the same time as the sex pistols. But, but yeah, so I mean, I, you know, going to St. Paul in fall 78 seeing, The Commandos, and then finding out about other bands like The Suburbs or NNB, and then, you know, finding a a record store like Orfolk Jokopus, you know, and being that kid that took the hour bus ride from Midway St. Paul to South Minneapolis every Saturday, rain, shine, snow, sleet, hail, whatever, getting on those, getting out, doing that three bus, you know, journey over to the record store so I could sit there behind the behind the magazine display so I could read Enemy and Sounds and Melody Maker cover to cover every week for free so that I could spend my five dollars wisely <laughs> on <laughs> records. I mean Pretty amazing times. And I'm sure all of it to anybody, you know, under 30, they're just like, what did he just say? What is all that stuff? You know, so, you know like buses and mag- what? magazines and singles and what? I, I think you, you end up building, you
0: know, like your own universe of stuff. Like, like there wasn't a roadmap, right? Especially at that point, like you're, like, like you're saying, you had to kind of like grab all these little disparate fragments of information and kind of put it together for yourself.
1: Yeah, totally, and and, and you know that you know just thinking about those days, you know, like with Orfolk or Northern Lights or the record stores in the Twin Cities, you know, I mean Cheapo Records, where I met Grant Hart, mm. the drummer from Husker Du, uh, you know that that kind of actual real community engagement, you know, people going to record stores, asking people you know, what's good. And then they're, you know, the clerk would be like, well, what kind of music do you like? And you try to describe a few things and then they'd sort of steer you and then you'd find out, uh, I don't really think that that record store clerk understands what I'm looking for, but that one does. And you know, that that whole ritual of being next to people in a record store going through the bins and you're sort of looking out of the, out of the corner of your eye. Well, why did they pull the x-ray specs record out? You know why? Why did they pull out the television album? You know, like, I, you know, man, it's like that's, that, like that was like really sort of romantic, you know, just like a real romance or a real love affair with music and the and the all the rituals that go into it. It, it, it was so so important. And, you, you know, you talk about building a universe. I mean, we'll you know we can definitely you know talk about that. You know, in terms of you know, once Husker Du was up and running, and what all of us tried to do in the in the nineteen eighty s, it's it's you know, pretty pretty magnificent times.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, I think, and going back that you know, the sort of time just before this that we're talking about, like it's funny when you think about like even the Suicide Commandos are forming in seventy four. You know, like there's almost like this, this like like your what was the story? The term used evolution, sort of oh, oh, diver-
1: divergent evolution, divergent
0: evolution. Like it feels like. There was this sort of like global boredom that was kind of brought on by people hanging out in record stores and talking to each other and, you know, music writers that were writing for these magazines or or local papers and kind of like hyping up these obscure bands. Like you had a real kind of birth of critical music culture at that point.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, for, for me, it was, you know, immersing myself in this new world, you know, within three months of arriving in St. Paul, the Commandos broke up, which broke my heart because I thought, I thought they were such a great band, but the beauty of it was within a few weeks, I had noticed, you know, a, a guitar lessons, you know, flyer up on the window at Orfolk. And it was Chris Osgood, the guitarist from the Commandos was, offering guitar lessons to people and you know I was I was pretty good at the time I mean I knew my way around I knew you know I could play any Ramon song I could play many Buzzcock songs I could you know play my way around a guitar a little bit but I just wanted to hang out with Chris you know (laughs) because I thought his band was so cool so I took a couple guitar lessons from him and it was it was just so great you know after the second I would go over to South Minneapolis. Chris had a little, little studio apartment. He was living with his then girlfriend, and apparently, she would like hide in the other room, like in the closet, when I came over. <laughs> and, but she was sort of be eavesdropping on the guitar lessons. And after the second lesson, you know, I was like, "So when's the next lesson?" And Chris sort of looked at me. He goes, you know, he goes, you know, you're a really good guitar player. You probably just need to start a band." <laughs> And I was like, "Is this guy blowing me off or what?" Like, I was like, "Oh, okay." So you know, and then you know, that was right around the time that I met uh, met Grant at Cheapo Records, which was a block off of the McAllister Campus in St. Paul. And uh, you know, Grant and I hit it off. He said he knew a guy named Greg who worked at another record store, in Northern Lights and uh he had a bass guitar so maybe we should get together and then you know and then it was that that months of getting building these friends you know this friendship with these guys and uh you know and then the the fourth member of buddy and the returnables which was our our band at the time you know this fellow named charlie pine who was a who played uh who played organ and then that that you know we all got together and worked on music you know worked on all these cover songs and all you know to to ostensibly to play a to play a couple nights of shows in March of 1979 at a bar near near Macalester. So the four of us are learning these covers but the three of us me Grant Greg are also on the side writing all our own songs not telling our keyboard <laughs> player. <laughs> so the, at the end of the second night, you know, the show's over and people want an encore and the four of us go back up and one of Grant's friends, a fellow named Balls Mikatowski, reached up and unripped the uh, ripped the lead cord out of the Farfisa organ, which rendered it useless. <laughs> and uh, poor Charlie Pine, who was the keyboardist and singer, you know, and you know, front guy ostensibly for for Buddy and the Returnables, was sort of standing there like, "What do I do?" you know, as the three of us are ripping into these original songs that he has no idea have been written <laughs> it was sort of wild, right? Yeah. That's the, uh, that's, that's the ultimate onstage firing. Thing. Man, you know, it was Saturday night. It was late. Things happened. You know, as I feel, I feel bad, but I think it worked out. Okay. Oh, Charlie went on to, yeah. Well, Charlie went on to be a very, very successful, uh, stockbroker. So I think everybody, I think it all went good for everybody involved. Well, and it just, it's just—it's weird to picture
0: where your sound would have gone with the farfisa organ kind of being carried around the whole time.
1: Well, I mean, you know, to be fair, as you know, as Who's went on and we started writing in earnest and making demos and doing recordings, you know, Grant wrote a lot of a lot of material on that farfisa and on on his Hammond organs and stuff. So, I mean, he you know and in, in a, you know i i think it's fair to say if you listen to Grant's drumming style and you you think about like surf music and and in a farfisa organ and stuff i mean there's a lot of you know a lot of through lines in that which you know in hindsight i think people can see and it should all make sense but uh but yeah had we had organ in there though, you know as as a as a continuing component of what became Husker du lord knows what that would have Lord knows where that would have gone. Well, and also just as like a
0: continuing component of what Husker Du did to modern rock and roll music, I'm just picturing like the Foo Fighters having Farfisa and the early lineup fucked up having Farfisa, No Age having Farfisa.
1: <laughs> that would have been super cool. Right? <laughs> could have been.
0: You could have really helped the Farfisa organ production industry.
1: Yes, I know it would. <laughs> It would have made it really tough on all of us touring because keyboards, as we know, are are problematic on the road. Yes, <laughs> definitely. You, you mentioned the Suicide
0: Command was breaking up in 78. Was that like a turning point or a changing point, you know, before, you know, your cells formed? But like, like the suburbs and the spooks and the jets and that kind of fingerprints and that whole early scene, was that kind of like on the wane or was that definitely a part of what your scene would become?
1: Well, I mean, we went to see, you know, we would go to see all of those bands. We had a kinship with the suburbs, and they were very helpful at the beginning as well. Uh, You know, we met, you know, Chris Osgood helped us with some early demos. There was a band called Fine Art from St. Paul and Colin Mansfield, the main lead guitarist in that band. He helped us with a lot of demos. Then we got to know Steve Felstead. Who helped us record the statues uh sessions, you know, which gave us one of the one of the sides of the first two single. Uh so you know, we were just we were just learning the scene, you know, we were learning about the other bands on Twin Tone Records, uh, you know, Peter Jesperson, who was one of the three principal partners in Twin Tone, he worked at Orfolk Jocopa. So I got to know Peter. And, you know, he was always talking about this band, the replacements. So we got to know them. And then there was Loudfast Rules, who you know went to went to high school pretty close to uh, you know I think they went to high school close to McAllister, so we knew them as they were starting to form. So you know it was just you know making friends and trying to get into the scene, and you know it was funny because back then there was a little bit of a difference between the Minneapolis scene and the Saint Paul scene because. You know, St. Paul is the state capital. Minneapolis was the more metropolitan finance-oriented town. And there was a bit of a rivalry between the two. So being from St. Paul, it was a little, you know, not less than, but a little sleepier, maybe. And I think people in Minneapolis maybe had to look like, oh, they're from St. Paul. You know, and I don't I don't I don't know if that still exists in the Twin Cities, but I mean we felt that a little bit and You know, I remember, you know, getting to know the folks at Twin Tone, you know, Peter, and then uh, Paul Stark, and a fellow named Charlie Hallman, who was a local uh, sports writer for one of the Daily Papers, and they were the partners, and none of them could agree on whether they should sign Husker Du to Twin Tone Records, which forced us to create our own label Reflex Records, and... That's where the Steve Belstead sessions and the Statues single come in. And that's really when the touring started for Husker du in the summer of 1981. Uh, just going back to Reflex Record, I think such a cool label. I love the fact that you guys do an
0: alphabet instead of a numbering system for the catalog. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we just we always we always did stuff a little contrary to what it, what was normal. Uh, yeah, I remember that reflex A.
0: Yeah, reflex. <laughs> was there a plan like after Z? It's like the labels only going to go to the end of the alphabet, and then that's it.
1: Probably would have been like shoe sizes, you know, A A A B B. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It also feels like there's a, almost like a, like, you know, in addition to sort of the twin tone scene and 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 sort of like the melodic stuff that's kind of happening, which you guys definitely also are a part of, there's also sort of like this like willful neglect, uh, final conflict, like more of a raging hardcore scene. Was that like a St. Paul, Minneapolis divide? Or is that just like a hardcore versus, you know, more punk kind of thing?
1: Uh, no, willful neglect were St. Paul, final conflict or South Minneapolis. But yeah, those, those two bands, there was definitely a lot of, sort of that, you know, sort of aggro, agro hardcore, and that was going on in both towns as well, you know, and with Reflex, there was, you know, a pretty wide swath of, 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 you know, styles as, as the years went on with bands, but, but yeah, that label was formed out of necessity. We had to do something, we had to get our music heard and, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was that was how that all started up and and we needed to have a single if we were going to go on the road because you had to you had to pay for gasoline so that's <laughs> that was that was your currency on the road was those boxes of singles and uh, you know reflex started with a uh, with a twenty five hundred dollar loan from grant's mother's credit union oh right. <laughs> which we actually repaid <laughs> Well, because you,
0: yeah, well, like I'm, I'm, I'm sure you could have because, like, it is a great label. Like the catalog is is really interesting. Like you said, it sonically goes all over the map, but you know, well, within punk rock or whatever this kind of like broader term genre is, but like it is, you know, like in not just your your own releases, there are like a bunch of classic records on that label.
1: Yeah, I mean, Rifle Sport, Man Sized Action. I mean, there's you know, Ground Ground Zero Autos Chemical Lounge. I mean, a lot of really really great stuff. So that, you know, as time went on, that became, you know, just yet another, another resource for local bands to, you know, if Twin Tone, which had, you know, which over time became a much bigger label to have a, to have a real independent like reflex and have, you know, support for distribution like from Dutch East and, you know, with people like Homestead and, you know, all, uh, you know, that whole scene really was, was, was super nice. But, uh, but yeah, Husker doing the and the and the road stuff. I mean, that's when we started to get out in '81. That idea of divergent evolution. When we started seeing, you know, seeing the you know seeing North America for the first time because you know we were parked in Minneapolis for the most part from '79 to the middle of '81. We would we would go to Chicago and play occasionally. We'd go to Madison and play occasionally, but for the most part, we were. We were the opening band for many, you know, punk shows in the Twin Cities, whether it was the Dead Kennedys or Black Flag or, you know, all the oi bands that used to come through. I mean, there was a period where, like, it was like one week it'd be GBH, then it'd be the Angelic Upstarts, it'd be Anti Pasty or Discharge and you know so you know or and then you know bands also like you know doa who you know we'll get to how incredibly helpful they were in the development of husker du in a in a moment but but that was you know that was our role we were the we were the welcome wagon for you know for for british oi and hardcore bands and and north american punk bands you know even like bad brains and you know just that so that was our that was our that was our knowledge base up until we went on the road in the summer of 1981, we were just watching bands come to town. We, you know, we would, we would open for them. Sometimes we would completely obliterate the stage and leave nothing for them. Uh, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes they were really good and, you know, it was sort of like, you know, two great bands in one night. Uh, wow. But yeah, they, not until, not until we got in the van and headed towards the Calgarian hotel, did we, did we understand what was happening around us and how we could contribute?
0: I guess like, you know, you mentioned the Madison scene and the connection that you had to the Madison scene. I guess that's why Mech Mench winds up on the early Reflex Records comp and you end up producing the Tar Babies, one of your early production things.
1: Yeah, Mech yeah, Mench was, uh, well, there was the Skate House down in Madison, you know, and, and Robin Davies who came out on some of the Husker tours to help out. As crew uh robin's band tar babies was was there and yeah the recordings that i did with them was actually alongside butch vig at the original smart studio so that's where where i first met butch and you know the, the madison scene was great the, you know there was also you know there was de you know i mean there's a lot of you know from milwaukee there was a lot of great great bands in wisconsin and of course chicago oh my god i mean like you know naked raygun strike under articles of faith there's another reflex band eventually. Yeah. Just, but, uh, but yeah. So as we were getting ready to, you know, try to, try to get on the road and try to go all across North America and and have our voices heard, you know, our, you know, our first journeys were, you know, across, across the border in Manitoba and onward to the Calgarian hotel. And I think that was in June or July of 81. And, uh, yeah, playing six nights at an SRO hotel bar, which is pretty insane. You know, I think Ken Lester, who managed DLA at the time, gave us that, that hookup. Uh,
0: (laughs) he's, he's someone who comes up on this show a lot as a rather infamous figure in uh in in music history you know especially vancouver music history obviously but like he is definitely like uh a real agent of (laughs) of of musical chaos i guess for a lot of bands it feels
1: yeah yeah it was great i mean they were you know the guys in doa were so sweet to to hooskers they were very very helpful yeah and uh you know they got us hooked up in calgary and then we went over to vancouver for a week and i remember they were like oh Yeah. We, there's this like abandoned house in Chinatown, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're starting to I think it was the right around the time of the world's fair. And they were starting (laughs) to level a lot of, a lot of buildings. Exploiting.
0: Yeah. Exploiting, whatever they did, right.
1: Expo. Yeah. It was the expo, the world expo. And and so we got steered to this abandoned house that had like a second floor that you could sort of get to with a ladder (laughs) And we would sleep up there because it seemed safer than the ground floor. And, you know, we didn't really, have, you know, we were just, you know, we're doing a show. We do a show with DOA at the Buddha. We'd go to, I remember they smuggled us in across uh, on the ferry to go to Victoria to play on Canada Day. You know, they, we were hiding under amps so that we wouldn't have to pay the extra $3 per person. Uh, <laughs> stuff like that. We had no food, so... They were like, oh, you know, you ever hear Black Flag? Yeah, this guy Ron Ray's that used to sing for Black Flag. Yeah, he'll he'll hook you up. So we would be at this abandoned house, and then like Ron would show up with these boxes of like uh, pre cooked spare ribs (laughs) and these flats and these flats of strawberries, and we're up in the second floor of this abandoned house and he's showing up with all this food and we're like where did you get the fridge oh I, I just jumped the fence over there at that food distribution thing <laughs> they won't miss it you know so we're you know so we're up there just like eating like cold pre-cooked spare ribs and throwing the bones down into the ground floor and you know the strawberry stems are going down with them and i mean it was pretty amazing stuff right so we did that for a week and did you uh, sorry
0: not to get you, but did you play with any other bands like in Calgary where you like personality crisis i guess would have been going around then right Yeah or,
1: pers- yeah personality crisis for sure i'm trying to think in uh, Vancouver would that have been like Insects would they've been Yeah that uh,
0: that makes sense or or would Degelo abortions in Victoria or not Diego yet.
1: abortions, uh, subhumans we had played with yeah. and we, we, you know, we knew those guys cause they were friends with DOA as well. So yeah, those are the bands, but yeah, personality crisis. They were from Winnipeg, right? Winnipeg.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. Remember, remember hanging with those guys on a couple shows, but yeah, the Vancouver th- scene, I mean, it was nuts. The Buddha was crazy, mm-hmm. you know, going over, going over to, to the Island was fun. And then that sort of led us down to. They were like, oh, get a hold of these folks that have this uh, weekly magazine called The Rocket in Seattle. Uh, I remember Dennis and Myrie were the two folks, and they had a house in Seattle, and we went down there for like a week. And it was the same kind of thing. You know, it was, oh my God, who were the bands back then? That was the Farts and Fastbacks, maybe? Fastbacks. I mean, that was like super Circle A scene in, uh, in Seattle at the time. <laughs> and, and and, and you know to sort of set it set it for people. I mean, in the early '80s, the Pacific Northwest and heroin had like a, a real tight relationship, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, the scenes were pretty crazy. In Seattle, I remember, like Rex and Gorilla Room, and uh, you know, I remember playing at the Showbox with the Kennedys and a bunch of other bands. And and Seattle was Seattle was wild because we stayed at the uh, we stayed at the at the group house there. And, you know, my favorite, you know, my favorite story, I guess, about about that time was I think it was a Saturday afternoon and wrestling was on. And we sort of stormed the TV room of the house. Yeah. And there was there was there was somebody in there watching like early days MTV. This young guy, I think he he was just learning, you know, getting ready to be a musician or whatever. And we were just like, hey, you get away from that television. We need to watch. We need to watch wrestling. And it turned out it was Duff McKagan. So so I'm sure, and I'm sure, yeah, he's probably still mad. Maybe, maybe not, probably not, but I thought that was a funny story. That is awesome. Well, that's like, you know, like once again, it's like
0: amazing, like these people that kind of come out of punk rock, like obviously, you know, the scene that you're from especially, but like all these people that were in these like small little clubs and shows together that would wind up changing the course of music forever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really, really just amazing times. I remember they, you know, after we left Seattle, they're like, Oh, you know, call this club down in Portland. I think it was satiricon. They're like, Oh, they do like a new wave Monday. And I think we may have played with poison idea. I don't have my book in front of me, so I can't remember. Yeah. Everything totally clear. It was 40 years ago, but yeah. But, uh, yeah, just I remember going to Portland and, and seeing that scene. And then that led us to, you know, San Francisco, where we camped out for a couple of weeks at Jella Biafra's place. And just, you know, that, I mean, you know, summer 81, I mean, that was Flipper and MDC and Kennedy's I mean, that was just outrageous, outrageous stuff. Going back to Portland, did you guys ever
0: play with the Wipers? Because I think, like, yourselves and the Wipers kind of, like, are, like, the twin influences that really inform What's to come sonically?
1: Uh, I can't recall if we played with Wipers or por- or Poison Idea. I'm thinking yeah. it was Poison Idea, but but yeah, I mean we were very aware of the Wipers. Once we got to Portland, everybody was you know there. Everybody was talking about them, and yeah, again another just legendary band, so mm-hmm. so influential. But uh, yeah, so that I mean that whole run of stuff leading us to San Francisco was just in you know just incredible, and I think the thing. You know, and then we, you know, we did the two weeks in San Francisco and, you know, Eastern Front with, you know, Wes, Wes Robinson over in, in Oakland mm-hmm. you know, is outdoor Dust Bowl type festivals. And, you know, Valencia Tool and Die, Mabuhay Gardens, you know, the Keystone, you know, on on Broadway, just all these, you know, legendary punk rock rooms and just that the vibrancy and the energy. And, you know, also, you know, I mean, at the same time being here where I am now in San Francisco, you know, being here where I am now in the Castro in San Francisco and remembering, you know, the, the sort of the grim news of, you know, this, you know, gay cancer that people started talking about at the same time. And, and, you know, know, I just remember being this young kid and it's like, you know, being knowing I was gay, but not having any gay identity whatsoever. You know, despite us going to leather bars for happy hour mm. on that tour, I just still wasn't. You know, I wasn't putting any of that together. It wasn't making sense to me. I did not. I wasn't connecting. I don't know why. Probably self-hating or self-loathing or whatever it was. But also being here, not only in the middle of that vibrant punk rock scene, but at the beginning of. You know what became a, a world pandemic, and and just remember hearing about that and going, wow, this is that's a lot to think about. And then we left San Francisco and drove in one sitting straight from San Francisco to Chicago. And <laughs> what a drive! Yeah, yeah, what a drive. And getting out of the van at out in front of I think it was Obanions where the Necros and Minor Threat were playing that night. <laughs> was that your first kind of
0: exposure like had you been exposed to like the midwest hardcore stuff that was kind of happening yet or, or was that your first exposure to that stuff
1: um uh, not not so much i mean you know knowing a little bit about madison and milwaukee but mm-hmm. and and no and and having played in chicago before that a couple times but but yeah that that like you know that reels, you know X on on the back of your hand, straight edge punk rock scene that Minor Threat was and that the Necros were, I guess, to a degree, Mm -hmm. you know, and just, you know, you know, just showing up and being like sort of the outcast band because that scene was already, it felt like it was galvanized and we pulled up and we're like, wow, this looks a little bit like everything we've seen, but it has a different feel to it. And, you know, but we said hi, and we all traded singles. You know, I think Minor Threat had their first EP out, and the Necros had their first EP out, and we had our single out. So it was like, oh, hey, here's our stuff. You know, let us know if you ever want to do anything. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, that was pretty pretty crazy times, right, to think of it so casually now.
0: Oh, well, it's like that, that tour you're describing right there, it's like, that's like the real birth of, like, American independent, not, there was obviously American independent music before, but I mean, like, what would become alternative music? Like that's the birth of it right there. Right.
1: Yeah. And all of the, you know, all of the fanzines and all of the weekly publications mm-hmm. and all of the record stores and college radio stations. I mean, we were all in this together because again, if I go backwards five years and I look at Rock Scene magazine and I look at those bands that I liked, there was no way I, I could ever have any of that. There was no way any of us could have any of that. And you know, I remembered as a kid what music meant to me and what the Beatles meant and what Woodstock meant and, you know, the Vietnam War and protest music and thinking music changed my life. Music can change the world for people. And to do a tour like that, you know, just trading phone numbers and the the kindness and the generosity of people who are throwing shows for us and letting us sleep on their floor with our sleeping bags. I mean that reminded me again it's like yes music can change the world we have to build this thing and we all have to help each other cuz because we we don't have access to that other music world mm-hmm. and, and and you know 40 years later I'm you know making this record that we you know the that just came out and and I'm you know I'm mindful of all that stuff again you know as we are you know in sort of a parallel place to, to 1984, for instance. And yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, just for, for people that are listening, yes, this stuff can, you know, this music thing can actually change the world still to this day. Let's not forget.
0: Yeah, no, hundred percent. Like it, it just, uh, well, it's amazing like all the people you're describing me on this tour and all the bands and things like that. And it's just like, where did this idea of getting in the van and touring go like that impacted, like that's the real thing that came out of punk rock. Is that kind of like, DIY, build your own, you know, world, universe type thing in a real sense and build your own scene. Like that goes around the world and you have bands that are, that don't sound anything like punk or hardcore bands that are, are influenced by that aspect of, of
1: punk rock. Well, yeah, once, I mean, once punk rock became of accepted mainstream, I mean, the next thing that was similar to that was rave culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that was that was to me where it went. Obviously, you know, obviously a lot of the hip-hop and R&B, but, but I think things that I could, I could measure, you know, things that I could measure, that idea of going to an abandoned field to throw a party, and the only way you find out about the next party is to go to the party, because it, as you're leaving, they hand you a flyer, and it's like a secret society of sorts. Yeah. So, you know, that was that was the through line for me. But but yeah, that early 80s, I mean, and then, you know, as Hooskerdoo went on and we were started making records and you know, got to be friends with the Minutemen, and they put out Land Speed Record, and we put out a Minutemen EP on Reflex. And then hooking up with Black Flag and you know, all, you know, just as, as the years went on and all those connections got made, you know, again, we were all just trying to, you know make a better world for ourselves and, and make a better world for music. Cause I mean, the, the stuff that was accepted mainstream music at the time was, was pretty, pretty tough, you know, pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned
0: like Minutemen right there and, and doing that record on new Alliance. Like, how did that come about as the second single? Like, uh, you know, was it, did you meet them on the road or they come through or?
1: uh we were friends with Black Flag we had recorded our homecoming show after the uh that summer 81 children's crusade tour mm-hmm. and we were hoping to put that out as a live album I, we sent it to Greg Ginn and he was like i don't know if i can put this out but let me give it to Mike Watt from the Minutemen and that's how that happened uh, you know watt heard it and just said yeah we'll put this out this is amazing
0: oh it's incredible like it's a uh... It's amazing that also that record label, you know, between the Descendants, the Minutemen, and yourselves, like you know, another label like Reflex that just has so much great stuff on it.
1: Yeah, really. Too. Yes, really, really great stuff. So, so you know, I mean, Watt was was so generous to do that, uh, and you know, the, so that became Land Speed Record and. and uh oddly enough we also went to Biafra with it and alternative tentacles in the uk also put out land speed records so we sort of had parallel record deals at the same time uh you know and then we just you know then off you know we were off to the races at that point we had a we had a we had an album we had another calling card we had the in a free land single that we put out Mm -hmm. uh and then, you know, we started put out Everything Falls Apart on Reflex. It was our second album, as we like to call it. And then, you know, things just built from there. We started going, touring deeper into Southern California. We started going across the Southwest, going into places like Austin, Texas. Well, all of Texas. I mean, Austin had an amazing scene with big boys and dicks and, you know, butthole surfers. And, you know, Liberty Lunch was an amazing venue. Voltaire's Bookstore. I mean, there was so much going on. Uh, Dal- Dallas, had, you know, Dallas had trees and VVV records, bands like NCM, Hugh Beaumont experience in Fort Worth, you know, And and the Houston scene was, was wild. I mean, Houston was such a wild town in general. Texas was always wild in the eighties.
0: Well, yeah. Like I wanted to ask you about that because it seems like, like you mentioned earlier, like not necessarily a hundred percent fitting in with, you know, the, 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 you know, uh, sort of like minor threat, straight edge, hardcore, or like the broader, like sort of necros kind of hardcore, hardcore type thing. Was it Texas? Because every band seems so different. Like what scene did you guys feel most at home in outside of, of Minneapolis? Cause you guys are spending, or, or Minnesota, I mean, because you're spending so much time on the road.
1: Uh, well, I mean, once we, once we hooked up with SST later in, you know, like 80, the 83 through 85 period, I would say the SST scene. I mean, Mm -hmm. that was our home. That was our home base label, and you know, SST was very close with Gary Tovar and his company Golden Voice, which I'm sure everybody knows is you know now you know a global brand because of Coachella. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we were working with Tovar early on at Golden Voice, and that that felt like our scene. You know, us Black Flag, Minutemen, Meat Puppets. That was, that was where we felt most at home. We always, I guess we felt more like a West coast band in terms of, you know, outside of Minneapolis. Uh, You know, the Texas scene was really great. It was, I mean, there was, you know, the Ritz theater was another great, great venue down there, but man, I'm telling you, that was, you know, you know, LA and South Bay that all that SST scene, there was a lot of police hostility towards the scene I mean, there was all the Sunset Strip helicopter nonsense. And, you know, I mean, they would show up, the cops would show up at SST. And if you're sitting out on the curb in front of the street, they would they would be happy to put you in handcuffs for no good reason. Uh, but, man, it was like when we went through Arizona, we started seeing guns all the time. We got to Texas and we were seeing guns everywhere. I mean, you know, that, that, that just informed the, the the local scenes a little bit differently. I mean, it was like, it was wild times. We were just we we didn't see that kind of stuff in Minnesota. <laughs> it was in so, playing like the Ritz and playing these multi band shows and you know getting pelted with beer cans solid for forty minutes and then after the set realizing oh they like us that's how that's that's how they like us here. <laughs> it's just just different different worlds, and and you know to, to experience all that stuff to be wide eyed and and totally open to all those experiences was was really amazing, and just different communities, different you know different ways of uh, of, of showing you know showing kinship, and again this was before you know before MTV exposed all of these scenes to the rest of the America everything was still a little insulated i mean everywhere had its particular flavor and you know particular style and 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 rituals and and that that was just really incredible to you know that that was well before the internet and you know the common threads i guess the things that held everything together would be publications like maximum rock and roll or punk or you know i mean it was you know, everything was so regional and just really amazing times. Well, yeah. Like what was it like rolling into
0: a scene like, you know, DC back then, which, you know, a lot of people from DC have come on and talked about how violent those early shows were like, like wh- where were you kind of seeing that sort of side of hardcore emerging at that time early on? Like where like people were moshing and stage diving and all that kind of stuff. Cause it's still very new at this point.
1: Yeah. I mean, our, our, Entry points at that would have been like the Newton Theater, would have been the Psychedelic, and especially the Nine Thirty Club. Uh, I got to be friends with Seth Hurwitz, who's the the you know the booker for for the original and the later Nine Thirty Club. And it was just that was like a, a, a you know a constant stop. I think Husker Du was playing there every three months. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that scene, the Straight Edge thing. I mean, that didn't work for Husker Du so much because we were. You know, we were living hard and fast and enjoying, you know, enjoying our, our drink and our, our pills and, and our weed and everything, you know, it was, you know, we were, we were, we were definitely hitting it hard. Uh, but yeah, the straight edge scene, I didn't really know what to make of it. Uh, it was a little more violent. I mean, a little more aggressive, I think, in in a, in a different way than than we were, you know, I mean, Southern California, that's, those scenes were pretty heavy too, but the DC scene was a little, it just seemed a little uh, stricter maybe. Mm-hmm. And it just a little more just compressed and a little, a little, a little more taut. Maybe. Is that a good word for the kind of music they made and the way that the scene presented itself it was a little tighter and just a little, a little more tense, I think would be the, would be the, would be the, the, the right word. But we, you know, I mean, we, we, we felt pretty good about it and, and fit in i think you know we get, we kept going back and playing so um well that's the thing you yeah. guys are, sorry go on sorry oh no that's all i got on that well cuz i was going to say
0: you guys one of the, you guys are the band that that you know has this incredible sense of melody the whole way through obviously in songwriting but also has the speed and power that that you could probably exist in like all sorts of different worlds that were kind of happening at the same time
1: yeah, yeah. I mean we you know, I think we did pretty good for you know, pretty good representing ourselves and our sound and, and and you know, again, just to you know, as long as as long as we were, you know, offering those kind of opportunities to bands in those towns when they came to Minneapolis. I mean, that was the best we could do. You know, I think it I think back then, you know, the idea of of, of sharing information with other bands, it was a little bit of a closed circle. I mean, you you know, you really you had to you had to have you know in a way you had to have something to offer in order to get asked to play these other shows in other towns so it was sort of it was like a self-sorting self-regulating community in a sense Mm -hmm. uh you know i mean the, the difference between the punk bands and like cover bands who started showing up in Minneapolis because they heard there was a, a scene there, you know, and they wanted to be part of a scene, but not sharing any of the, you know, the sort of the the work ethic or the sensibility, you, you wouldn't really be as inclined to share your information with them because they had managers who were trying to advance their cause and get professional. <laughs> so, <laughs> that wasn't really what we were doing. I mean, we ended up doing that, but that wasn't how it started. <laughs> I think,
0: like, a, a real like, weird compilation, a compilation I've been obsessed with since I got it, like, years and years ago, is that a diamond hidden in the mouth of a corpse yep. that you guys are on. And it really, I think, reflects how, you know, Husker du could could be that band that could be all sorts of things to all different types of people at the
1: time. I mean, that was, that was a gateway to an entirely new world. Uh, I mean, I was a huge William Burroughs fan. I had read Naked Lunch in my first year at college and, you know, my head was spinning from Mm -hmm. reading that. I, I couldn't, I could not, I could not really figure out what this was. Is this real? Is this fiction? Is this, are these dreams? Are these hallucinations? What, what's happening here? Um, I mean, that, you know, the fascination with Williams writing led me to, you know, industrial music, stuff like Throbbing Gristle and being, you know, being a pen pal with Genesis Peorage and, you know, helping to put together a Throbbing Gristle fanzine and in, in Minnesota with another friend of mine, you know, so sort of sent me down that corridor. And, uh, I remember, uh, you know, John Giorno, you know, uh, you know, rest in power, John, he, uh, you know, one of my mentors and he was, you know, he reached out to Who's and, you know, he was reaching out to a lot of downtown New York artists at the time, you know, Diamante Galas and, you know, Sonic Youth, you know, that Glenn Branca side of stuff, uh, butthole surfers as well. And, and people like David Johansson and, and Debbie Harry. And I remember John approaching us to be part of this compilation called a diamond hidden in the mouth of a corpse and he told us who was on it. And we said, sure, that would be great. And a couple days after we said yes, uh, I remember Grant and I were talking and we said, why don't we go back and do some kind of, you know, come up with some kind of idea. And we called it the Husker Du Challenge, where we challenged all of the artists on the compilation to donate their royalties to uh, a worthy cause. And we, and we looked to John and said, what would a good cause be for this? And he said, Well, I got some friends that are doing this thing, like a meals on wheels kind of thing for people with AIDS. It's called God's Love, We Deliver. And we were like, that sounds perfect. Let's let's give the money, let's send the money that way. So, you know, that was a, uh, awesome. Yeah, that was what, 83, 84. So yeah, so I mean we, you know, it was it was the it was the least we could do. And when he explained the cause, we were like, oh my god, yes, please, let's do that so that compilation sort of you know gave us uh, you know gave us an entry to that lane of of creativity and and expression you know with the beats and you know getting to meet william at the bunker you know with john and you know just you know how that unfolded over the years to all of the people that we got to meet and ex- you know people like keith herring and jim carroll and mm-hmm you know, Edie Kerouac and, and her son, you know, and, and Leary and Ginsburg and just, you know, I mean to, you know, I mean, and I was such a, you know, such a, you know, I just consumed all of those City Lights poetry books and, you know, I still have all of them to this day. They're probably my second, second favorite possession, second favorite media possessions along with all my jukebox singles from my early childhood. You kept all the singles? Oh yeah. They're, they're like four feet away from me right now. I'm, oh, I'm looking so awesome. at, I'm looking at them as we talk. <laughs> uh, so, you know, to, to, you know, that compilation opened up another doorway to uh, an entirely different set of creative people in New York, you know, based in New York, but, you know, uh, you know, just great, you know, all the great beat poets and all the, all those good, you know, those, those heavy thinkers from that era to, and to sit, you know, to sit by that, you know, that, that, that knowledge tree and and just listen and take all of that in was, you know, another real, you know, just a really great experience. You know, very, very, you know, always grateful that John reached out to us and, you know, just, you know, I mean, I was, I think I called Dial a Poem the other day. I couldn't, I couldn't help it. (laughs) It's it's still going. I could not help myself.
0: (laughs) Uh, Cause uh, you end up doing a single with William Burroughs and Vincent Gallo
1: on soul, right? Oh, uh, that was William and Kurt Cobain. Oh, Kurt William and Kurt Cobain on that that, yeah. that came out on Soul, right? Yeah, that was singles only label, which was something that I I was part of from 1988 onwards. Yeah.
0: So it was uh, was that out of that relationship ultimately that collaboration kind of you ended up putting that record out.
1: Uh, the Burroughs Kurt Cobain thing. Yeah. Uh, that- that, that came down the line through, uh, actually from Nicholas Hill, who was one of the three partners of Singles Only Label. Mm-hmm. It was Nicholas and Steve Fallon, who legendary from Maxwell's and Hoboken. And uh, I remember Steve and Nick came to me and suggested that we do this Singles Label because of my love of jukebox singles. And also, this was the period where I was living up on the farm in northern Minnesota, and I think it was their way of keeping me in touch with the world. <laughs> so, so, you know, that was a, that was a, you know, singles only labels. That was a great label, similar to reflex. And yeah. the Bur- the Burroughs Kurt thing was one of the, was uh, one of the singles we put out. We put out the first Moby single. Uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we did a lot of cool stuff on that, on on that label, you know, a crazy, Angel D- a huge discography too. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, singles only label was a fun project, but, uh, but yeah, I think Nick, Nick Hill was the one that brought the William Kurt thing because that might've been a Northwest. That might've been a Portland connection, Mm -hmm. a Portland to Seattle connection. That might've, might've been a Courtney love connection. I can't remember. That's so many people. So,
0: (laughs) well, I've asked you a lot of questions and I could talk to you as you know, forever. Uh, Would you come back at some point down the line for a part two?
1: We should definitely do a part two. We could do a little more music, but we got to do the wrestling thing, Damien. We finally got to do this. <laughs> we, I know. I was going
0: to say, before I let you go, I have like, like just a list of like three or four kind of weird questions. I've been trying to ask you for so long that i love. Let's do it. Okay. First, number one, that Tulsa Jack recording, the Jack single is one of the greatest obscure power pop records ever from Tulsa. How did that, you know, collaboration come about and, and like, what are your memories of that tape? Because it's impossible to hear, obviously.
1: Uh, it's a fellow named Mitch Griffin. He was from he I think he was from Tulsa, but he was living in Minneapolis at the time. He was a clerk at Orfolk as well. Okay. So he was in. So he was in the scene, and uh, I think he just he took a chance and asked if I would, you know, throw down a guitar track, and was was happy to help out. Was it sort of straight up power pop like their early stuff was? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, it had my tone, but it was definitely, you know, it would, it would, it would fit in that power pop thing, I guess, you know, sort of, sort of near stuff like, uh, Dwight Twilley or Mm -hmm. shoes or, you know, that kind of, you know, which I love that stuff too. So, um, and on the barefoot and pregnant
0: comp, the last track is an interview with the Chic. Is that with the original Chic from Detroit?
1: Uh, no, that was Sheik Adnan El Casey. Oh, really? There's actually no- the Chic. Yeah, awesome. it was Adnan. I think we may have just grabbed that off of television. I I don't remember Adnan like coming by, you know, <laughs> coming by Seventh Street to soundcheck and cutting a promo. I think I'd remember that. That would be incredible without it happening. But yeah, we we threw that on, and yeah, my yeah my well, we'll get in. Yeah, my my history between punk rock and wrestling in the '80s in Minneapolis. That's that's where all this damage started.
0: Well, that sets us up perfectly for my next question, which is we got to talk about wrestling. Like how, how did that happen? Because obviously you're breaking into wrestling at a point when you still have to pay dues and it's not just like you can show up and pay your wrestling school fee and get in. And also you're involved in this super deep punk rock hardcore thing that seems completely disparate
1: at the time. Like wh- how did that happen? Well, uh, the my connection, my, my, my initial entree into pro wrestling was a fellow named, uh, he's passed away. His name was Jim Melby and Jim was a, uh, record store clerk at Northern Lights where Greg Norton worked. And Jim was partly in the music business a little bit, but his main focus was professional wrestling for years. Jim, uh, published the, uh, the arena magazines, both for WWF for Vince senior and for Vern Gagne and the AWA, you know, the ones that'd be the ones where you get the single sheet would be the, it would have the card lineup. And then it would be like an eight page, uh, program that was Jim. And Jim also wrote with a fellow named, uh, Norm Keitzer, who, uh, published Wrestling Review and Wrestling Monthly. Anyways, Jim got Jim was a music fan. I was a wrestling fan. We got to be good friends, and Jim slowly started smartening me up to the business. Um, along the same time, somehow I got to be friends with Jesse Ventura. He sh- he showed up at Goofy's Upper Deck, which was a was sort of a hardcore punk club that I was helping to helping to run with another friend of mine named Fred Gartner. And Jesse would show up and just sort of burn with us upstairs in the dressing room. And I remember giving him a metal circus T-shirt. I went up to his gym and walked in. And I think both of the road warriors were working out there at the time because that whole scene, you know, that whole Minneapolis grandma bees bouncers <laughs> who went on to be famous pro wrestlers, you know, Hawk, Annable, yeah. uh, Rick Rude, uh, Kurt Hennig, all those Robbinsdale high guys. The Minnesota recce crew. Yeah, we're all the same, we're all the same age, So, and they all, you know, and a lot of them worked out at Jesse's place and got trained by Eddie Shark here. but anyway, so got to be friends with Jesse, but get back to Jim Melby, he would slowly smarten me up, let me behind, ever so slightly behind the curtain, and then I think the day where it all happened was, uh, Jim, there was a spot show, and for the wrestling people who are still, uh, you know, the music fans maybe have hung up by now, but the wrestling fans. <laughs> oh, no, there's uh, a big cult of us now.
0: It's it's huge, this cult.
1: <laughs> okay, so, you know, so spot shows basically, you know, Minneapolis was home base for the AWA. Wally Carbo was a local promoter. And on off nights when they weren't in Denver or Salt Lake or Winnipeg or San Francisco or Chicago or Milwaukee, which were the big towns for them, you know, outside of Minneapolis, they would run what were called spot shows, where there'd be ten guys, a, you know, one ref, a ring, and you go into a. It'd be a sponsored show that you'd work with the Kiwanis Club or the Elks Club or whatever. They, you know, 10 guys in a ring and a ref and a ring announcer, and you go to a high school gymnasium and you set up and there'd be 1,500 people. And it was a sold show where the Kiwanis club would give the AWA X amount of money and they would keep the, keep the, keep the rest of it. And, you know, it'd be 10 guys. So it'd be like, you know, three single matches, a tag match, and then a battle royal. So and Jim had to run this show and it was in the middle of a blizzard. So I drove up with him. And it turned out he had, he was ring announcing and I was sort of watching how we were doing this. And I remember one of the matches was, uh, God, it was Scott Hall against somebody. I can't remember. I don't know if it was Zabisco or something like that, but it was a, it, Scott was the baby face. There was a heel and they had to go 20 minute Broadway. And I was timekeeping because Jim was ring announcing and I, I was sort of nudging him, like, you know, he would say, you know, 15 minutes, and I would lean over to him. I go, but Jim is 13. He goes, no, it's 15. And then it'd be one minute remaining. And I'd be, but Jim is 17. He goes, no, it's one minute remaining. And I'm like, ah, I get it. <laughs> Those were the go home cues, right? Mm-hmm. So, I sort of figured that out on the fly. And then for the Battle Royal, he had to referee. So I had to ring announce. And he's like, okay, so you're going to do this and this and this. And you know what? I've watched it my whole life. So I now I'm like, aha, uh-huh, I got it. And I was like, now I get how they do it. Because mm-hmm. that was like, you know, for for WWF, that would be. When, you know, when somebody would walk down to ringside and wiggle their tie and then walk back, that was like the go home cue for, for, for Vince's territory. There was all these, you know, so like, oh, I'm getting it now. Now I understand. It's not real. It's predetermined. Everybody's cooperating. And there's all of these, you know, these sort of inside baseball signals that, you know, that that sort of forward the show and make it all work. And that. After that show, I remember Jim and I went to this like weird fishing lodge to have dinner and Wally Carbo the promoter was there and all the boys were there and everybody was getting on great and drinking and eating dinner together. I'm like, "Okay, I totally got it now." <laughs> and we're and we're and we're going back and Jim's like, "Okay, so everything you just saw, you don't talk about with anybody ever." And I'm like, "I got it."
0: Yeah.
1: He's like, "Do you get it?" I said, "I got it." <laughs> So that was the moment, right?
0: <laughs> so at the same time, you're kind of like, and, and, and after this point, you know, and you're still like, you know, paying your dues in wrestling, you're also touring. Like, how how did you juggle those two things? Like, was it just something where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm home for a little bit. I can kind of come do a little bit of work or like, were you kind of like on call or?
1: Well, no, I was just, that was, you know, I wasn't working in the business at the time. That was just like a one-off spot show thing where everything, you know, where all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden I knew what kayfabe meant and it was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really working. I was still friends with Jim and oddly enough, really the, 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 the funny of it is that Jim put aside wrestling and uh, working at the, working in the music business to come road manage Husker do for one tour, <laughs> which was wild because Jim didn't drive and Jim didn't know much about our business, but he was tour managing. And I remember he got his ear pierced and we called him diamond, Jim Melby. <laughs> and he would go in, he would go, he would like go in with a cigar to do settlements with the promoters. I mean, he was just living the gimmick. It was awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. So, but I, but I still, I wasn't really doing anything in the business at that point, but mm-hmm. Jim introduced me to a fellow who also grew up in Minneapolis. Uh, his name is Gary Juster and Gary and I are still friends to this day, but in meeting gary in 1987 that was what sets up my eventual you know entry into the you know officially into my creative consultant position at wcw in late 1999
0: uh, just because you wind up kind of going you know with a lot of these guys you wind up with them in wcw again like scott hall eric Bischoff. like it's amazing how many of these guys were in AWA before the winding up in WCW for the, the big WCW era, obviously.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, once I, once I met Gary and then I moved to the East coast, I would, you know, Gary was the uh, NWA. He was Crockett's promoter on the East coast, uh, the Northeast. Like he would, he would do the Meadowlands super shows. He would do Philadelphia civic center and he would do Baltimore civic center. So whenever Gary had a show, I would, You know, he would be like, come to the show, come do this, come that, you know, just come hang out. So I would, you know, I was going to, you know, I think I I remember going to like bash, the bash in Philadelphia. I think it was 86 or 87, maybe Mm -hmm. the one that got the one that almost got shut down because there was so much blood across the whole show. That was the one where Wahoo got the blade stuck in his forehead. (laughs) I've watched it. Yeah, that was a nutty show, man. And the whole, the whole outdoor stadium that smelled like blood, it was just (sighs) nuts Um, but then, you know, as, as time went on, I started going to the shows. Then I got to know, you know, I remember I would go to Atlanta and I would go up to the tower, you know, CNN tower. And that's where I met Oli. And I remember Oli giving me shit right off the bat. (laughs) That's where, you know, that's where I met Jim Ross and and Jim and I got to be pretty good friends through Gary. We would hang out a lot. Uh, got to, you know, that's when Gary introduced me to Jim Barnett. Oh my God. You know, and then, and. You know, how much I learned from Jim Barnett was amazing. I used to sit at shows with Jim Barnett and he'd be like, well, what do you think? What do you what do you see? What do you you know, my boy, what do you see? (laughs) Jim Jim was such a character and, you know, a real a really good friend as well. And, you know, and then, you know, you know, Gary would just keep introducing me to people. He'd have me brainstorm with Kip Fry, you know, when he was there. You know, I remember driving Gary and Jim Hurd back from the Meadowlands in a blizzard the night Sting finally won the belt from Flair, and Jim Hurd was, you know, just cursing in the car, fucking Flair, blah, blah. I think it might have been Flair got the belt back from Sting, and he was, fucking Flair, and he just oh yeah like, fucking belt, he's just obsessed with it. You know? <laughs> you know, so it's like these crazy, crazy nights, and then eventually, you know, and then eventually, I remember it was 90, the summer of 91, uh, my then partner and I were coming back from Europe from the solo acoustic touring that I was doing, which was, you know, also like the year punk broke month, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, so I was doing all of those shows that ended up in that documentary. And I remember coming back and we went down my partner and my partner at the time. And I went down to Philadelphia. And after that house show at the civic center, hanging out with Gary and that was my first time meeting Kevin Sullivan and Nancy. Oh yeah. So, and you know, we all hung out for hours and, you know, partied and just got to know each other. And that was the connection that eventually became, you know, not only Gary getting me into WCW, but you know, then becoming, you know, Sullivan's right hand guy for that whole stretch of time, which was crazy. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, it's, it's you know, like one of the most story parts of wrestling history. But, you know, you brought up Jim Barnett and learning from Jim Barnett. I think certainly in the last few years, it's kind of become more widely known how important of a role he had in bringing wrestling to the place it got brought to.
1: Oh, my God. I mean, with the Dumont, you know, with, with the Golden Age in the 50s and then, you know, when he... You know, everything that he did in Atlanta and then the wars, and then you know, everything that he did for pro wrestling in Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, and then coming and then coming back and having the falling out in Atlanta, going up to Vince, you know, and then Mania 3, you know, that 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 craziness. Uh and then and then Jim getting let go and going back to Atlanta, and then that's where I met him, you know, and then and meeting Sullivan and and then meeting Terry Taylor and then ending up in, you know, ending up at Gorilla for shows like in 97, sitting with, you know, sitting with T. Taylor and, and Sullivan and them asking me, what do you see? What do you think? And then two years later, ending up working with all those guys. It was crazy.
0: It's, it's also funny how like, you know, you're, your, you know, year punk broke kind of happens. And then obviously a few years later, it's almost like the year wrestling broke. But, you know, it's yeah. still like sort of the same sort of thing where, you know, all of a sudden it goes from one thing to something completely different kind of overnight.
1: Yeah, oh, you mean like Attitude Era? Yeah, like so? the
0: Attitude Era, or just prior to that, like the NWO kind of explosion prior to that, I guess, even, or Goldberg, obviously, as well. And
1: Yeah, well, the NWO, I mean, that was, you know, Eric definitely, you know, I think the the story that I heard was he went to a, a New Japan Dome show <laughs> yeah. and saw the interpromotional, you know, I think that's when they were doing a lot of stuff with the shooters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he saw that idea and thought, wow, that could, that's, there's something we could do, you know, like, a, like an outsider group, that would be good. Yeah, so that was, yeah, that was NWO and the whole, you know, the the story about Hogan having to be talked into the turn, you know, that whole, that crazy, that crazy story that I've heard, whether it was true or not, that, you know, that night, you know, Sullivan had to babysit him the night before because he was like so freaked out about the idea of being a heel, <laughs> So I was like, it's going to be okay. It's going to work. It's going to work. And sure enough, it worked. So <laughs> Sullivan had a way Sullivan had a way with Hogan. So that was <laughs> well, like, you know, I've talked to Kevin
0: Sullivan about it too, but I think I, I think he misheard me and thought I was talking about funk music when I asked him if he was into punk um, because he'd start talking about funk artists afterwards. But like, is there, were there any wrestlers you were encountering that were into punk music? Because now you look at it, there's like tons of lead singers of punk bands that also wrestle and tons of wrestlers that are into punk rock. Like it really feels like the crossovers really happen now.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Jesse early on coming to Goofy's Upper Deck in 83, yeah. that was that was pretty stunning. That's amazing. Um, I, yeah, I remember in the fall of '87 there was a Minnesota Music Awards, you know, like a Grammys type show, mm-hmm. and we uh, we 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 reached out and we got Blackjack Lanza to introduce us, <laughs> which was nuts because he knew nothing about wrestling. you know, nothing about he knew a lot about wrestling, but he didn't know much about music. But it was still fun to hang out with him. Uh, you know, I think through you know through the '90s, I guess my time at WCW there was definitely way more of a music overlap. I think when I showed up, the the buzz started going around as to who I was or what I did in my normal life. Mm-hmm. So people come like Jimmy Hart was right away, came up, you know, baby, baby, I hear you're in a band. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be in a band. I said, yeah, keep on dancing, Jimmy. I know. I know, baby. I know, baby, pushing... what is Ho- baby, what does hoaxer want to do tonight, baby? <laughs>
0: he, he, wanted you, uh, he wanted a Gentry's cover out of you. That's what I think he was really pushing for.
1: Well, and then there was people on the production side that thought I was there to write new intro music. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not here for the music. <laughs> I mean, I'm here, to, I'm here to help book the territory.
0: <laughs> well, it, I, Robbie Brookside has been on the show a few times, and one of his big regrets is that you guys were like ships in the night passing and he never got to work with you at WCW.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It would have been fun. I mean, the guy, the guy, the one guy, the one guy that stands out that was like the big, that, 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 you know, came to me with the, I know who you are. I know what you've done was, uh, was, was Ian was Vampiro. Yeah. That makes sense. And uh, you know, he and I, he and I hit it off really well. And I mean, if you, you know, I mean for, for whatever little good or bad that I did for the time I was there, you know vamp became one of my projects and that was the that was the period when russo went home and they gave the book back to sullivan and it was me and sullivan and ed ferrara that were doing all the work you know t taylor would pop in shivani came in once in a while to to, to help barnett showed up once in a while just with ideas but uh yeah one of my things with Vampiro was to really try to tell his story. He wanted to do a a series of like personality, you know, like Les Thatcher personality profile type things where we would talk about him being such a legendary figure in Mexico. And he wanted to do it as a shoot, you know, talking about, you know, all the steroids and all the drugs. And you know, the AOL time order was a little a little not so into that. Mm-hmm. But, but I, you know, but I remember that, you know, Vampiro was, you know, I said to Kevin, I said, let's really try to make this a project. I think we could do something. Kevin was like, ah, yeah, but his work is so loose, you know? And I said, well, what can we do about that? He says, I'll put him in for four weeks with Finley. <laughs> <laughs> Does that, he says, he'll, get, he'll be snug after that. <laughs> like, and sure enough, after four weeks of, the you know, Vamp getting the, crap kicked out of me he 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 snugged up and then it was all of a sudden people got behind it and they started to believe him and then we you know finally paid that one off and started moving him up you know as as you do with professional wrestling when you when you do it the old-fashioned way
0: he he had already finished up with the misfits by the time you started working there right
1: yeah uh yeah misfits came and went my uh, i think in fall of 99 that was the first when they came in and I think that was Bill Banks, might have been the conduit there that brought them in, you know, an ICP, you know, they came into for a while. So that, I mean, I didn't interface directly with them. I, I was on the same flight as Jerry, only quite often because I would fly out of Newark to go to, you know, to go places on Monday mornings, you know, if I wasn't already in Atlanta.
0: Yeah.
1: So sometimes we'd be on the same flights, you know, out of Newark, but, uh, that's as close as I got to Misfits. They're nice guys.
0: Yeah, no, I just wonder nice. it's such a funny thing to think of like, you know, these two legends of of, of music both winding <laughs> up in this completely alien world at the same
1: time. Yeah, yeah. But I mean but I mean, yeah, I think people knew what I what I did there. and I think you know, but I mean my job there was very different. You know i mean i i came in to try to help with the booking and then you know i do you know i remember you know the one thing one great thing i can say about vince Russo is he was you know was as soon as he came in he put me at gorilla i was like oh okay so you want you want me to be vince mcmahon then is that what you're... <laughs> like, you want me to run you want me to run this whole shenanigans with with craig leathers out in the truck and 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 it was great because it was it was a, it was his job I I did not know the deep details of it, but it took me about a half an hour to figure it out. I would love is it, please tell me there's a photo of you sitting in gorilla backstage at
0: WCW <laughs> like that is just such an image that yeah uh,
1: there, oh. there, theres yeah there is there's That's awesome. uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a photo I've got it's sort of etched in my mind it's it's Russo and Jimmy Hart, of course. And me and, uh, God, uh, Bill Bush. Oh, incredible. Yeah. They're like, I'm there with the headset and they're sort of, everybody's looking over my shoulder. Like what's next, you know?
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, that is, even if I never get to see the picture, I at least I'll carry that mental image with me because that is like the collision of so many worlds at once for me. Um, this has been one of the most fun conversations I've ever had, but one thing I wanted to talk to you about before I let you go live your life again, Bob, and I promise next time I see you, I will not punish you like this in real life. All right. We'll go back to normal. Um, but, uh, John Pollock from post wrestling, but back when he was on live audio wrestling, uh, Dan Lovransky interviewed you, uh, I guess shortly after you kind of wrapped up with WCW and you were talking yep. about Samoa Joe and CM Punk and just all this young talent that you you'd really wanted to bring in there. Um, yes. <laughs> how, like, how did you like keep your ear to the ground to find out about that stuff? Cause it's still like pre internet becoming what it is in wrestling. Like, were you going to these shows, to sc- just checking out indies or,
1: uh, mostly getting stuff from Meltzer, getting stuff from Wade, you know, mm-hmm. just being aware of stuff. I, you know, I, I started with the guy, I started with the observer probably like 80, some somewhere in eighty something, maybe 88, 89. And and got to know Dave early on through through Gary Jester. So I mean I was you know just trying to keep my you know ear to the ground with new talent. A lot of you know a lot of that stuff was coming out of the Midwest. You know I wasn't at like the steel domain area. You know the era where CM Punk was. You know I think it was him, and I can't remember who some of the other guys were. But yeah, him and Joe. A Steel AJ, Kurt Cobain.
0: Oh, sorry, A Steel Cole Cabana. Uh, Cole
1: Cabana. Yeah. I mean, I was the one, I, I remember bringing, uh, Mike modest in at the very yeah, end, oh yeah, definitely. you know, and, uh, Chris Daniels. So, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I mean, there was, I, yeah, I mean a lot of the guys that are, you know, that went on to, you know, sort of build the foundation for everything that we see now, you know, whether it was, you know, the, most, mostly through all their time at ring of honor. Yeah. I mean, I, I sort of, you know, I knew about those guys early on and was, you know, always at Sullivan and, you know, just saying, we got to get young guys. We got to get new guys that can work. These guys are all fans of, these guys are all watching like all Japan, you know, and Noah, we got to, let's go in that direction. And, you know, at the time we had, we had a lot of guys while well, we, before they all left, we had so many guys that could work that style, you know, whether, you know, Chris and Eddie and, you know, Dean and, and Shane and all, I mean, you know, that whole pack of guys. I mean, that was my project, you know, those guys were my project, you know, while I was there as well, so...
0: Yeah, it's, it's amazing how, like, that period of wrestling that we're talking about, like, this sort of Christopher Daniels, that next wave of people, like, that really is like Husker Do and Black Flag and, and DOA of wrestling. Like, these guys that were getting in the van, you know, going around the country and just kind of like building their own network. Like, it's obviously completely different than punk rock, but it's still sort of the same ideology of just like creating something where there's nothing.
1: Yeah, because they, because they were definitely, you know, they definitely weren't fitting into that body style that was. Still- You know, I mean, you know, I think some of that had gone away in the mid 90s. But, you know, again, still that sort of free thinking, sort of rebellious style that I think all those guys had. They 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 certainly wouldn't have fit in New York. And, you know, I I, I don't know. I don't know if there was I don't know if there would have been room for them in Atlanta because there was, you know, I mean, there was still a lot of politics down there, of course.
0: Uh, well, this has been, as I say, Bob, unbelievable. I didn't even get to ask you about the wrestling fanzine, but that we'll save for a part two because... All
1: right, we'll do part two. I'm, I'm, I'm down, but I'm okay. down for it.
0: I'll let you get your uh, <laughs> your sense of reality back now. <laughs> All
1: right. Man, that was that was a lot of stuff. Thanks, Damien. it would be fun. We'll do a part two soon.
0: Thank you, Bob, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Bob will be back for a part two at some point in the future. I'm going to hold him to that. I'm going to, I'm going to really, Ooh, cause there's a lot more to cover. (laughs) We barely scratched the surface. Oh my gosh. Oh, we barely scratched the surface on that one. Uh, and also happy birthday to Bob. Bob recently had a birthday as well. Uh, and God damn it. He's still, still putting out, you know, my favorite records all these years later. He put out my favorite records at every stage of my life. You know, this guy, this guy. And also Jason and of course uh Worcester, uh his band, one of the greatest punk supergroups ever assembled. And hopefully uh we all get a chance to see them play it live again real soon. Cause I want to see these songs live now. Blue Hearts, check it out on Merge And I'm not just saying it because we're friends and I'm not just saying it because we're on that label. I'm being honest when I tell you it's one of my favorite, if not the favorite record of this year. Uh and it's out now. All right. Whew. Speaking of out now, well, not out yet. It's going to be out a little bit later, uh, maybe in a few days, probably a few days. We're going to keep it going with one of the greatest songwriters ever from, from England this time. And I, I feel these two episodes do fit together in a weird way because I think they they both occupy similar spaces, these artists, in their respective countries in pre-foretelling kind of the uh, the wave of music to come. It'll make a lot more sense when you hear the episode next week. Next week on the show or, or in a few days on the show, Billy Bragg is here. That's right. Billy Bragg. And if you've wanted to hear a Billy Bragg interview where he talks about Riffraff. No, not the rapper Riffraff. His his old band Riffraff. For like half the interview, then you are in luck. That's what we do. Oh, it's a good one. Oh, I'm I'm not saying uh, you know it's the best Billy Bragg interview you're ever going to hear. I would never be that presumptuous, but it is certainly unlike pretty much any Billy Bragg interview you're going to hear. It's a I had a really fun time uh, talking to him. Oh, I'm excited. We're on a run. We are on a run of good episodes. thank you so much to Bob for coming on the show uh, thank you to Tristan. oh my gosh Tristan, I love you so much and I really cannot thank you enough for the, all the hard work you do for this podcast uh, and, and give me a chance to to punish friends uh, friend heroes and and just straight up hero heroes alike you know it just oh, it's, it's a great I love doing this thing. And that's it. All right. I remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We must protect trans people and trans kids. Uh, right now is a, a pivotal time in uh, in 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 history. You know, and in, in, in my lifetime, certainly, I, I cannot think of a time uh, much like this, where it feels like we are on a precipice of real positive change happening, and also on a precipice of real terrible evil happening at the same time and so is our job as as concerned people to be as informed as we can be read as much as you can show up sign petitions donate money if you can fuck fascism in all its forms stand up and say it because it's creepy watching this shit happen every day and it's not just you know in america it's happening in Canada. It's happening all over the places right now, and uh, yeah, just just stay informed um, and 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 support. Uh, go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this. Anyone can can do a podcast, start a zine, do a band. Uh, all this shit is done by by anyone. And it's never too late. Do it. Do it now. Start a zine. You know, start, why not? It's fun. It's fun, you know. It keeps you sane. Making this culture stuff, it keeps you sane, you know. Yelling in a microphone it really used to help me. i got to get back to doing that <laughs> again real soon. But, uh, yeah. yeah, go out there and make your own culture. Sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. So why not just give them to someone else and, uh, you know, keep the party going. You know your your organs will be parting with that person now, so sign your organ donor cards, and uh, that's it. I think that is it. Uh, stay safe. I love you, and I'll see you on the next episode. Ooh, we are we are on a run. We are on a run of great episodes, and there are more to come, because oh, uh, I'm excited for you to hear it. All right, that's it. Thank you for listening.